Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Hello, hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of Breast Cancer Conversations. In today's episode, we are joined with Abigail Johnston and Emily Parks. We dive deep into this term that you may or may not be familiar with called medical PTSD. Even if you don't know the definition, I am sure you have experienced this just by the sheer fact that you've been diagnosed with a breast cancer diagnosis. Cancer is traumatic, and we're going to break it down. Before we get started, I do want to invite all of you to hop on over to survivingbreastcancer.org and explore our rich resources that we have all over our website, from blog articles to videos, webinars, to free events that you can take advantage of, such as our Monday meditation classes. We have support groups for those of all stages and subtypes, including those for inflammatory breast cancer, as well as those living with metastatic disease. We also have a private Facebook group that you can join if you're looking for more community. So over on Facebook, you could just search for survivingbreastcancer.org, as well as follow us on social media. There's so many ways to just get involved. So I just want to make sure that you have the resources at your fingertips and know how to connect with myself, Laura at survivingbreastcancer.org, or any member of our team and community through social. So let's dive right in. Welcome to the conversation. If you've been following survivingbreastcancer.org for any amount of time, you probably have heard that we have this NBC webinar series. It used to be the NBC Sunday series. Now it's just webinar series because we transferred over to Wednesday. But our commitment to all of you is that we will tackle those issues that aren't necessarily being talked about in other spaces. Something that is so important to people living with metastatic breast cancer, but also people who are living with any kind of chronic illness that requires you to interface with the medical system regularly is how it makes you feel to interact with the medical system regularly. And if any of you listening have participated in any kind of ongoing treatment for cancer or anything else, The medical system itself just comes with different challenges. And the longer you have to get treatment for any type of diagnosis, but particularly a cancer diagnosis, sometimes the more difficult it is just simply to show up uh, for those appointments. So if you haven't listened to the episode from last year where we interviewed Brenda uh, talking about her book um, with title was Medical PTSD, You should go back and listen to that because she had a lot of stories about her own particular experience as a child and then how that informed her experience as as a cancer patient. But as with happened so many times, when we have great speakers that come on the series, they introduce us to other great speakers. And so Brenda introduced us to Emily. And so Emily is here as a medical PTSD expert and is going to be talking about her experience. We're going to share some. Uh, data, some articles, some links, and some information so that you can learn more about this. Uh, But first, Emily, I would love to turn it over to you to introduce yourself and uh, to share as much or as little of of your own personal medical experience as you would like. 
Yeah, well, thank you so much, um, Abigail, for the introduction. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm Emily Parks. I'm a young professional living outside of the Washington, D.C. area, working in both behavioral health and patient advocacy. I uh, graduated from Boston University with a bachelor's in psychology, and I'm currently pursuing a uh, master's in business administration, uh, specifically in healthcare management at John Hopkins University. Uh, my diagnosis story is, it's, I mean, it started like three hours after I was born. <laughs> wow. So I was born chronically ill. Um, I was born with um, a gene mutation uh, that impacted the ability for my GI system to form smooth muscle. And so this primarily impacted my uh, small intestine. And so the muscles were really weak and I also couldn't really absorb anything through them. So I was put on uh, IV nutrition or TPN. Um, pretty much when I was seven, we tried enteral nutrition and that didn't really work. And I stayed on TPN up until I was 27. So I went through high school with it. I went through college with it. Um, I worked while doing it, um, you know, and so with many people who, uh, have, um, survived cancer, I also have, um, a central line. I actually, I actually have one now. Um, and so, you know, the maintenance of the line, I had an ostomy, I, uh, gastrostomy as well. And, uh, when I was 27, I received a small bowel transplant, uh, so that's in the entire intestine. So I'm no longer on TPN, just some IV fluids and all my organs are back inside my body. <laughs> um, and now it's just navigating kind of post-transplant life and how to keep the transplant happy so I don't have to do it again. And so, oh, go ahead. No, I just, I imagine you're on a fair amount of medications, anti-rejection medications as well, right? Oh yeah, An uh, lifelong anti-rejection medications, a lot of vitamins, a lot of minerals, a lot of meds to help encourage uh, absorption of fluids. Uh, it really just teaches you that the body is one big system and one gear goes out of whack and the whole system is a mess. And it takes a lot of medications to fix that one gear that went wrong. It's an excellent analogy and so appropriate for people living with cancer, right? When the cells begin growing out of control, it, you know, that that's what causes so, so many issues. So at any point in your experience with all of these doctors and procedures and medications and all of that, uh, were you provided the mental health support to deal with all of that as you were being treated for all of these pretty significant medical physically medical issues? Absolutely not. Um, you know, there was uh, child life services, which more is like, let's, uh, you know, spend, let's use up time between treatments. And uh, let me reassure you by distracting you. Uh, fortunately, a lot of people in my immediate family work in behavioral health. 
So I was put into therapy very early in life. Um, and my parents watched me very closely. Uh, and so that was my main support system. But that is simply out of luck. My parents could have been accountants. And it would have been a way different story for me in terms of my mental health. And even with everything that they did to help me, I still struggle with my mental health today. How could you not after having so many of those experiences at such a young age? So were you ever actually diagnosed with medical PTSD or has this become an interest because of your experiences? I've never been diagnosed. I know a few people who have been diagnosed. Um, it is not officially a diagnosis. There is no code to it that you could bill services for. Um, I've described it to multiple members of, I have a cat. Um, and she just, mine may make an, mine may make an appearance as well. So we we love cats. (laughs) So I've, I've described medical PTSD to a number of my therapists and They've all agreed that it makes sense. I think it's just, it's, it's something that, um, you know, as a society, we're learning more about. We see more in the news about people feeling unheard or how difficult it is being uh, chronically ill, such as, um, oh, an Instagram post saying, you know, you break your arm and people bring you, uh, you know, dinner. So, uh, yeah, to cook, but you say you have depression and there's nobody knocking on the door offering supports, which is a sad, sad state of affairs. So would you give us a, your definition of medical PTSD? Yeah, of course. So medical PTSD, it's a form of complex PTSD. Um, it's a disorder in which a person struggles recovering from either experiencing or witnessing a terrifying medical event. Uh, Such events can range from medical interventions required for survival, think like uh, surgeries or being in the ICU, to communication errors between patients or providers. That can be, um, think of, you know, your provider said, um, you know, I'll, I'll keep you informed along the way. And suddenly home health is calling you up saying you're starting a new medication that you specifically said you didn't want to be on. Or the classic uh, doctor coming into the patient room and saying, this is what we're doing. Um, When I think many of us would prefer, these are the options. What do you think? Sure. Yeah. So a diagnosis of cancer that will end your life, Mm -hmm. like metastatic breast cancer, would qualify under that, that particular definition. Or could it? It definitely could. It's less about... Um, the diagnosis because it, it can um, it's kind of like a secondary um, diagnosis. You you could have uh, diabetes. You could have um, hypertension. It could be because we all experience trauma differently. Um, it's identifying with um, the diagnosis is more of feeling uh, symptoms of PTSD. Um, in association with how you're treated by your healthcare system. It leans more towards those communication errors because those are things we can control. Now, if you need to be rushed into 
uh, into a surgery suite or you're not going to make it, um, that can be traumatic for anybody. But that's a life and death um, moment. Um, but it is, it does, in, it is within the medical PTSD definition because it's the event that's like in a medical setting. Think PTSD, but instead of I'm um, a soldier in Iraq, I'm a patient in a hospital. So a situation like you say to your team, please call me to discuss appointment times so that I can see if that fits into my schedule. And instead you get the call. I have scheduled you for an appointment today at four o'clock and you are unable to make that appointment. Would, would that be an example of these communication errors or this missing, you're, you're not connecting in terms of communication between patients and providers? Yeah, if it's causing distress, if it's a repeated offense, if you've said multiple times this doesn't work, it, it's really, uh, let me let me get a little bit into uh, some of the symptoms of PTSD. Uh, so it could be uh, anxiety. So the war veteran, uh, you know, gets anxious when, uh, when, you know, he's in the woods and things get too quiet. Uh, think of the patient who gets anxious every time the phone rings and scrolling across their phone on their caller ID is your doctor to the point that you can't pick up the phone. Um, intrusive thoughts. Uh, you know, something's going to happen to my family. Uh, like as the war veteran, I, something's going to happen to my family. There's going to be an attack uh, versus the patient that's like, well, if I say to my doctor, no, what if um, they just treat me worse? They, they, they don't listen to me more. I'm a difficult patient. Or, um, you know, uh, what if the cancer comes back? What if the cancer comes back? What if the cancer comes back? Um, and that's, you know, any kind of intrusive thought can go into that. Um, a, a big uh, place that is a common department that triggers people is uh, the emergency room. Uh, the emergency room is known for emergencies. You're going to go in there and meet someone you've likely never met before it's going to be very cut and dry, very fast. This isn't a place to build a relationship. A big preventer for medical PTSD is building a relationship that's respectful and has communication on both sides between patients and providers. And the emergency room simply isn't designed to be like that. So when in a situation where you have had chemotherapy and you felt terrible after chemotherapy and you have to walk into that infusion room again to get chemotherapy and you know the outcome you know you're going to feel terrible tomorrow um you know they're the triggers of you know I haven't heard you use that word yet but uh you know for me anyway the triggers of the sights the smells the sounds of those darn infusion machines right there's almost that Pavlovian response where immediately I sometimes for me anyway, I start feeling nauseous, even if I don't have any medication that's making me feel nauseous, but you start to associate sounds, smells, locations with 
certain experiences or how you feel in those experiences. It Would that also be something that would um, fit into this definition? Yes, it would, um, as well as those kind of uh, triggers of intrusive thoughts or, um, you know, it could be even something as simple as somebody at work said something that slightly reminded you of something your doctor said that made you feel bad. Um, so there, there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of triggers and especially when we are overly triggered, uh, the, the danger with medical PTSD and providers not um, addressing it and taking it seriously is that <clears throat> say it's Tuesday, you have an appointment for chemotherapy. You're just thinking about, you know, having to drive there and your stomach drops and, you know, the sights, the smell, you know, you're going to feel bad. You might not show up. So it's treatment disengagement. You might stop picking up a phone in which the cancer could grow. Um, or, Let's say you're in recovery and you're still totally avoidant of the hospitals. Um, it it disconnects you from preventative care. So, you know, preventative care is super important because if there's a problem, it's easier to squash it when it's small than uh, when it's a bigger problem and needs more medical intervention and is overall more destructive in life. So that person who has maybe had a cancer diagnosis and then doesn't want to keep getting their mammograms because they're afraid that they're going to find another lump that they may have to have treatment for. Obviously that's more in the early stage setting, but um, you know, it, it is also fascinating to me that um, you talked about disengagement from treatment, which is so much of a better term than non-compliance. Um, and, and that is typically what you see in, in notes that the patient was non-compliant with, you know, fill, fill in the blank. And so it, it, is that does that term help, or is it um, is it something that even makes people feel shame even for their reaction? Definitely, I I think it's it's a word we continue to use, and we shouldn't use. Um, even if uh, you know you need a more clinical word, you could say non adherence. Uh, but when you say compliance, it uh, there is a natural power dynamic between patients and providers. One is, and it's interesting. So one is the provider who's gone through all the schooling and the other is the patient. And right now it's kind of viewed that, and really it's um, uh, an, uh, a way that doctors carry themselves that you don't question the doctor. That's That comes from, uh, you know, long decades, decades, decades ago attitudes that have still remained. Um, but what's interesting is that there's a switch in the power dynamic that we don't talk about. And it's that the doctor's providing a service that we are buying. So if you went to the, you, you were going to buy a car and, you know, the dealership comes out, the dealer comes out and says, you're going to buy this one. You'd be like, no. <laughs> So there's this secondary power dynamic, but non-compliance, it, it, it illuminates the power dynamic that you're supposed to do this. But really, who are you serving? Who is this about? And I do want to say, um, somebody who has a cancer diagnosis 
and um, disengages from mammograms, that's not necessarily a case of medical PTSD. That could be a case of just, um, you know, I'm scared to know the truth. I'm scared to face it. There has to be repeated offenses because PTSD comes from repeated traumatic experiences. And that person, if unless they've already had cancer and they're like, oh, now it's somewhere else, um, they would, we would assume, not have had repeated traumatic experiences. I, well, at least in my experience, the, the metastatic breast cancer experience is, is a whole lot of repeated traumas over and over and over again. So is there is there research kind of in this idea of trauma and trauma responses that that helps illuminate um, how how people respond to trauma? And then secondly, you know, is that something that our medical system actually acknowledges or understands how to deal with? There isn't research right now. There are more people writing blogs. There are more books out there. Um, there could be research going on out there that just hasn't been published. I'm working on a publishment publication with Brenda. Um, I'm working on an education module um, with a couple of hospitals, but there is no official research. There is research on chronic illness uh, and how it impacts children, um, but it's it's more it's more vague and the the kind of if you scroll around on Instagram you'll see a lot of hashtag medical PTSD but if you google medical PTSD you will find more of or medical trauma that's also another word that's associated with it people um will usually find resources about like physical trauma from like a crash site or, uh, you know, it, it's not so much the psychological trauma. And then can you remind me of your second question? <laughs> <laughs> no, just just the it's in your experience or in what you've read, it is the medical system generally. Do they acknowledge this trauma? Do they acknowledge or understand what happens to patients when they have to keep getting care after there have been traumas? Not that I know of in a public sense. Um, there is a rise in patient-centered care, patient quality and assurance. Um, sometimes we see that word and it, it, it really is an empty buzzword. But then we also see other hospitals really stepping up and um, making, uh, you know, changes that in their hospital that actually make sense. Um, there, are, I would say that once you sit down and you talk to a provider that is willing to listen, a lot of them will walk away and say, I didn't think of it like that, but I do now, especially nurses. A lot of nurses are like, oh yeah, this is definitely a thing. So on a one-on-one -on -one basis, people can understand it. And a lot of people, when I talk to them about it, they, they are like, you know, I'm thinking of a particular patient or um, a particular loved one, um, if they're a provider that's had their own frustrations with the healthcare system. But it is certainly not 
um, as far as publicly known, acknowledged um, as it being traumatic. I think mostly because a hospital acknowledging that they are a traumatic experience is bad marketing. True. That is very true. Yeah. So I've, I've approached, um, provider, uh, you know, um, a hospital's patient family advisory committee about, uh, medical gaslighting. And, uh, they really hated the word gaslighting. They were like, would, oh. would you define that? Would you define gaslighting real quick before you get into that? Yeah. Yeah. So medical gaslighting is, it's really using gaslighting, um, techniques to minimize or diminish, um, the observations and feelings of a patient. So it's a lot of, uh, dismissal. It's, a uh, things like, oh, you shouldn't be in pain. Well, that's, I, maybe I shouldn't be, but I am. Um, or, oh, it's in your head. Or I wouldn't worry about that right now. Um, or simply not believing. Um, or it didn't happen like that. Uh, there can be blatant lying in the system. Um, I remember after my transplant, um, they were uh, trying to fit me for a G-tube, um, like one of those long ones. And uh, it kept flipping around in my stomach. So they, they wanted to tack it to my abdominal wall. And they accidentally perforated it. But they weren't sure how big the perforation was. So I was in my room. And I could hear them rounding outside my door. And the door was cracked a little bit. And it was very clear that the attending physician was like, there's a perforation. We don't know how big it is. We're going to watch her. And then they come in and I say, so I have a perforation, I hear. And he's like, no, there's no perforation. And I was like, you just said there's a perforation. Like, no. how, how old were you at this point? I was 27. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so I actually got my dad on the phone, and I was like, well, they they left, and I called my dad, and, you know, my dad chewed him out over the phone. It was like, you know, she has a right to know, because, you know, another thing that I'm sure many of us have faced is, uh, so my, my dad's a physician, and unfortunately, uh, patients, they, in my experience, I am at times not believed and then my my dad will get on the phone and advocate and then they listen. But then just because are, it's coming from a different person who has a perceived different education that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, but then there's doctors who become sick or you know their their loved ones become sick um and uh they're suddenly not believed either. It's interesting. Uh, but anyway, he called him up and he chewed him out and he said, you know, you say you said you had a perp, perp outside her door. You come in, you say she doesn't. Does she have a perp or not? Are you going to rush her into surgery tonight or not? She has a right to know. And they said, OK, yeah, there's it's a mini perf. Do you find, though, since you were a child when you're um, experiencing so many things, obviously, this was when you were 27, but. Have you found a, a difference in how you are treated as you've gotten older? 
that they've adjusted how they share things with you or they've adjusted how they treat you? Yes, but that was a lot of work that I put into them. So I see myself as kind of a hiring manager of my own team. Now, we can't always choose our providers, but sometimes we're very limited on who's available. But I, when somebody new comes on my team, I put them through the ringer. And uh, if they are not respectful and, you know, providing the kind of care that I want in terms of communication, uh, I blacklist them. You know, if you can't, it's, you know, you're fired. <laughs> um, now, I'm able to do that because I have a very good relationship with my gastroenterologist. Um, I think the big change that I noticed is I, so I was in a, I was at a children's hospital up until I was 26. And even though I was 26 and, you know, into adulthood fully um it's it's very hard for providers who are used to treating children to see the difference that I'm no longer a child you know it's an autopilot of how you interact and so I didn't see a huge difference until I became um until I became an adult that was in an adult hospital now my direct team they talked to me like I was an adult, but, you know, all these kind of auxiliary people that we see, um, I was talked down to. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I want to say that, of course, there are doctors that have no business being doctors. But I do believe that there are plenty of doctors that truly have good intentions. I think a lot of medical gaslighting is a fallback to realizing I don't know the answer, but I don't feel like I can say I don't know because I'm in this role of being um, all-knowing. And I don't know what Doctors are being taught in hospitals, I, I in medical schools. I don't know if they're advised. If you don't know, never admit it. But as a patient, if you don't know, tell me you don't know. And say, I don't know, but I'm going to find out. But that is an extra step. And doctors are strapped right now. And they're burnt out in addition after, you know, they were burnt out before. But now they're extra crispy after the pandemic. Yeah. That's such a, a great reminder because even as we're advocating as patients or trying to assist our teams in seeing us as people, right? And seeing all these these nuances to remember that it's a human being on the other side of the table as well, with yeah. stressors and, and everything else from, from dealing with kind of being in that position, because how much pressure is it to they feel have, as though you have to know all the answers? Yeah, they gotta fill quotas, other you know, um, doctors below them, uh, rely on them. So they're on, you know, they have to, uh, they're beeped, they're paged. Um, then suddenly, you know, somebody's rushed into surgery and you got to make a decision. 
Now uh, the system gets more complicated. Um, there's more and more diseases than there were a hundred years ago. There's even more treatments. It's a lot to manage. Um, and our healthcare system at large needs um, a lot of uh, renovating. So that is a nice way of, of saying that. <laughs> renovating. I like that. <laughs> but in this, you know, journey of like learning more about medical PTSD, it's very easy to get very angry and be very them against us. And I don't believe that's the solution. I don't believe separating ourselves is going to help. It's let me understand you and let, and you let me get you to understand me. Well, and that's exactly where I wanted us to go next. So here's our background, right? You're living with a serious chronic issue. You're living with metastatic breast cancer. You I have to interfere. I'm, I'm not breast cancer. No, not you. You. I, yeah, I'm just saying generally, right? Like, I'm sorry. I'm I, mean, I know you're not living with oh, MBC. I'm sorry, I'm, I don't have breast cancer. Sorry. I know. I know. <laughs> you know, I'm just, I'm just setting the stage, right? So here a person is. You have this disease. You have this diagnosis where you have to, to stay alive, interact with the medical system, right? So this is the stage. You have to interface in order to stay alive. You are triggered, you struggle maybe with, with how you're treated. And so how do you access care in a way that is livable, where you still have a quality of life, even as you're getting th this necessary care with these different actors that are causing extra things, extra trauma, extra things along the way? How do you do that? This is only a discussion you can have with yourself. And it's a discussion of boundaries, boundaries with yourself and boundaries with others. So before I recognized that I had some kind of trauma associated with the healthcare system, I was wound really tight. I remember I would be anxious for days up until my appointment, you know, the 30 minute drive to my hospital, the parking, you know, just getting wound tighter and tighter. I would walk in and there were like door greeters all the time. I would walk in with my head down, my headphones on, hoping none of them engaged with me. And I accidentally made eye contact because I was afraid I was going to bop them in the face. You know, and I was just kind of in this fight or flight um, mode. And it was hard for me to remember things and engage in the conversations that I was having. And as soon as they said, okay, we're done, I'm like flying out of that building. And then I'd be like, well, what, what, what am I supposed to do? What is she doing? And then, you know, the healthcare was all over the place for me. Um, so I think the first step is recognizing your medical PTSD, which you might be doing now, um, and this might be a step by um, listening to this presentation, um, and then recognizing what triggers you. So what triggered me was people getting closer to me. 
And it's a funny story. I was taking ballroom dance lessons. <laughs> and I, every time I was, you know, um, you know, uh, in kind of the arm position uh, with um, my male partner, uh, my body would be really stiff, really still, and I wouldn't make eye contact. And I stayed like that for six months. I don't know how my dance instructor put up with me, but he did. And I remember once dancing actually with him. And out of the blue, it dawned on me that I, real quick, I have an enlarged spleen. And people love to feel it. Like doctors love, and it's it's that thing where they push down and they're like, tell me when it hurts, which is like, well, I don't want it to hurt. he's dancing with me and it suddenly dawned on me Evan doesn't care how big my spleen is um and that he just wants to dance with me and why am I so like tight which began my kind of let's connect the dots so it's it's recognizing how medical trauma affects you what's the triggers how is it an obstacle for you how does it present i would i would wholly recommend do not disengage from your healthcare that's a good reminder very yeah. good reminder thank you for that it's not do do not do that <laughs> um and then seeing, you know, where where do you get triggered in experience your your healthcare and what is kind of your big reaction? Some people shut down, some people get really angry and inappropriate, and then later they feel bad. And so maybe looking into those coping mechanisms, um, whatever you learn about yourself with your triggers and where they um come from, reminding yourself, making a mantra if you're about to blow up. Um, like, you know, this isn't, I, I'm feeling scared right now. I'm just feeling scared and I don't have a reason to feel scared right now. Everything's okay. Everything's okay. And then, you know, this is going to be difficult, but it's okay to tell a doctor no. And it's okay to say stop and they have to stop. And seeing, you know, if you feel comfortable with your doctor, I would talk to them about how you're feeling and say, you know, this is, and th- there are providers that are initially going to think, well, everybody's afraid of cancer, but it's not the cancer. It's how I'm treated while I'm being treated for cancer. And that can take multiple conversations. It's not a one and done. Um, I, I find that a lot of like short sentences, I actually just got a colonoscopy saying, I, I have anxiety around anesthesia. I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling sad. This scares me. And then saying immediately, even if, you know, cause usually when we say I'm scared, we wait for people to say, why are you scared? Don't wait. Say, I'm scared. Pause. This is what I'm scared of. 
Will you help me? Because that that prompts them to do something instead of saying, you'll be okay. Will you help me? And if what they're doing doesn't help, that doesn't help. But it's good to come in and say, what would help? Because a lot of the times when we face somebody who is scared in the moment, we don't know how to help. And direction is helpful for us. So I'm scared. The oxygen mask is scaring me in the anesthesia room. Will you help me? And if they're like, well, you need oxygen. Will you blow the oxygen at me instead of putting the mask on me? Or if you don't know an alternative to say, is there an alternative to what, you know, the oxygen mask being on my face uh, for that example, right? But ask, directly ask, what is the alternative instead of hoping people will jump in because they may not know. Yeah. Um, And then I would also recommend, and this will be, you know, it's a process, it's a long process. um, And I know for me, it's probably going to be a lifelong process but uh setting boundaries so with phone calls for example i told my transplant team you can call me after 3 30 after 3 30 unless it's something that is time sensitive after 3 30 and does your team honor that boundary they do but it it takes a lot of kind of self-advocating um it took they they honor that now because i said you know it's a lot of over explaining in a way Um, I call me after three 30. I work a lot. I am in client meetings and trainings and meetings with my boss back to back to back. I may not be able to take your call, but it is important for me to talk to you after three 30 is best. So give them a reason. Don't like, you know, Give give everybody reasons so they understand the context. A doctor is going to understand having to see patients back to back to back. Or I try to tell people, you know, you need to call me before three o'clock because my children get home from school at three o'clock and I can't focus on anything other than what's going on with them once my children are home. Right. That That's maybe another example. Yeah. I work. You work. We both need to maintain our jobs. So how, what can we do together so that you get the information to me that you need to for your job and I can maintain my job while receiving the information? So it, it can take a lot of over-explaining because doctors, um, they're more facts and numbers thinkers than emotions and communication thinkers. So you kind of have to say it over and over and over again, kind of like my math tutor had to explain uh, X, Y equals MX plus B over and over and over to me. (laughs) The the other thing that I was thinking of too, is that when you say you're anxious or you say you're concerned about a particular thing, what happens a lot in our community is that you're offered a prescription. And so instead of helping you get to the root of or address the thing that you're anxious about or scared about, that that is often the go-to. Well, take some Ativan. Um, And I'm not saying that that Ativan's not helpful because, you know, full disclosure, I take Ativan when I have to go to the um, infusion center. But, you know, sometimes medication isn't always the the answer. Um, 
but that's a go-to, right? I mean, the medical system generally, you know, write another prescription, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm also club Ativan. So woo. Um, <laughs> but you can just flatly say a pharmaceutical medication is not what I need right now. That doesn't work. Yes. What one of our listeners did comment, uh, Marcy said that she uses emotional freedom technique tapping when she gets anxiety going to her oncology office. Uh, so there's there's another very practical thing that that people can do. Um, you know, one thing that a lot of us talk about in the MBC community is, you know, every three to six or sometimes 12 months, we get a scan that tells us is the cancer behaving. And so you get a um, a reprieve if the scan is well uh, or goes well or the cancer is behaving itself. But if that scan is, is not good, then that means you're thrust into a situation where you're having to pick new medication, progression, et cetera. And so no, once you start going through those scans and you know what uh, could happen, um, a lot of people call that scanxiety. And so I think that fits very well into what we're talking about, that you have that you're anxious about the results because you know what could possibly happen. Um, and I don't see that there's a whole lot of assistance kind of around that, that skin anxiety. Again, it's just take some medication and yeah. Uh, yeah and wait. <laughs> and, and with that, it's always also nice to say thank you for offering that. The great I'm reminder. The root of why I'm anxious. And work on that. And a van is not a solution that will get me there. You know, and it's really, it's really owning your own anxiety and saying, this is what I need. This is who I want to be. This is how I want to deal with it. Because, you know, we'll, we'll have, you know, doctors and nurses and techs. But our diagnosis is a very personal experience. And one thing that is kind of like a catch-22 to me, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but there's always going to be kind of this curtain between us and specifically physicians. <laughs> and that is, unless you, you know, in not all situations, but a physician needs their health to be able to be a, a get through medical school and practice medicine. They are running. And they treat people who have a low likelihood of getting through medical school themselves. So they can't know what it's like. Because if they did, they wouldn't be working the job that they're working now. But that's not their fault. So you're just saying they're coming from such a different perspective, yeah. which patients are coming from a different perspective as well, that it takes both sides to really work to understand the other yeah. is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. yeah. Um, is there any literature? Um, oh, and Kathleen, thank you so much for the reminder that there are doctors that are living with disabilities as well. Kathleen is living with cerebral palsy and is also a neuroscientist. So 
Yes, there yeah, are many people. Not at all. Have, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a great, great reminder. Great reminder. Um, but Emily, I think there were a couple of um, articles or uh, resources that uh, you wanted to talk about to, um, tonight. Would, would you like to run through some of the research that you found that you'd like to share? Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're, they're interesting in that they're like, um, like a unicorn research, research where it, I don't know how it came about, but somebody published it. So it's really like once in a blue moon, we might find something. Um, so there's once bitten, twice shy, and bitten is an acronym for, and it's um a resource. It bitten is an acronym for a resource for nurses on providing uh, uh, treatment center. I mean, patient centered care. Um, there's uh, when treatment becomes trauma, which is you know, very similar to talking about, I, I, I don't think that they specifically say medical PTSD, but they do talk about how going through the healthcare system is a traumatic experience. Um, and then there is, uh, and that last one you talked about is actually a publication by the NIH. So the National Institute mm -hmm. of Health. Yes. Um, I, I think one of the other articles was PTSD oh. rates among patients with cancer three times above the level of the general population. That That is a startling, maybe not so startling. I mean, it's a big statistic, but I'm really not that surprised by it. <laughs> and then um, we, and then the last one is a PubMed uh, publication, uh, pu post-traumatic stress disorder and post-traumatic stress symptoms following critical illness in medical intensive care patients. Uh, so it talks about how, um, kind of like how we talked about the emergency uh, room is uh, especially a triggering area. So our ICUs, um, it, it is known that people have trauma in the ICU. Um, just by the nature of how sick they are, they may not always be conscious. Uh, it's there's less communication to the patient because they're in a more um, sensitive position. I know that when I've been in the ICU, um, well, I was in the surgical ICU after my transplant, and I remember um, it was, you know, it's not it's not funny. It's kind of ironically fun. It's not funny. I laugh when I get nervous. Um, it felt like I was just being treated as a body. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so when you're in the ICU, it's more of a things are being done to you versus there being enough of a conversation to really understand because they're used to treating people who aren't able to communicate. Um, I don't know why it's like that. But that could be a possibility. People are unconscious. Um, people are in critical states where they can't make decisions and they got consent from a family member. Um, and it's it's just a more sensitive kind of level of being sick that it's that it's like just get the person stable. Just wow. get the person out of the ICU. 
Um, and to be fair, when I kind of felt like I was being treated um, just as a body, I had just come out of like a weak coma. So essentially, I was a body. Yeah. But I think the most vulnerable place that you can be, or at least that I've experienced, is being a patient, generally. And mm-hmm. certainly, if you're unable to interact with the people mm-hmm. providing you care for whatever reason, how much more vulnerable are you in that situation? You can't you can't even express when you feel pain or when something is going on. Yeah. Um, and, and things are quicker. There's, there's just less communication to the patient. Yeah. So, so we've talked about that when trauma happens, that, that affects us, that there can be these responses to, to that trauma. Um, you talked about the fight or flight, you talked about people maybe disengaging from medical care. You talked about people really going inward right? To really try to understand where things are coming from, owning the things that have happened to us, owning our responsibility. You talked about sharing that um, with your team. Um, But I want to just ask you, we've got a few more minutes here. If this is something that someone is struggling with, what professionals or what avenues of assistance are available. So is this just a, this is something to process in therapy? Is there some other resource that you can recommend? I mean, we've talked about really practical things, which is great, but what if you just can't figure it out on your own and you're not successful? (laughs) I would do a combined approach of, you know, establishing talk therapy so that your therapist knows exactly like what you're feeling and why you're feeling it and the connection to the healthcare system, because what um, is different from that, uh, you know, war veteran we mentioned earlier is that the war's over. Every human will be is involved in the healthcare system for their entire life for the rest of their lives, and likely we will all, on varying levels, be um, continuing to engage in the healthcare system uh, more often uh, than your average Joe on the street. Uh, we cannot avoid the healthcare system unless you disengage. But again, don't do that. Um, or please don't do that. Talk to a therapist so that they understand where it's coming from. And, you know, you can kind of talk about the the feelings of, you know, there there's this feeling of being trapped, trapped in the healthcare system. Um, your uh, specific relationships with your physicians, what you want to change. And then I would slowly incorporate talking to your physicians about it. Because physicians, when they understand and they're willing and empathetic to help, they have a lot of power. Because I have such a wonderful relationship with my transplant GI doctor, um, I have, we have more trust with each other. We have more rapport. It was even yesterday that I was on the phone with one of the NPs and they said, I'm trying to get rid of my IV. And she said, well, we want you to. And I just said, I'm stopping the fluids. Um, and, and I'm drinking more water. Um, and she, 
you know, they said, we'd like you to start the fluids again, one liter a day. And we'd like you to start drinking not two liters of water, but three. And I explained to them that when I see a bag of fluids running, I get lazy about drinking because psychologically, I think I don't need to drink. It's going in right now. I have to challenge myself. So I'm going to drink three liters a day and we're going to see how that goes. Is that okay with you? Like, what do you think about that? And they were like, okay, because they, at first with my nurse practitioners, it was very tough. Um, But with advocating for myself, and I'm sure there was a conversation with my doctor, they have to work with me. And what you were doing was you were proposing a reasonable solution, a trial, right? You're going to try this, see how it goes, where, where there's a, a way to, to make adjustments, right? It, would, that, would that be a, a good way of explaining that conversation? Yeah, yeah. and that um, because their, their boss, you know, trusts me, that gives them more reassurance to do the same as well. Right. Instead of, you know, more understanding of who I am. I'm not, you know, some willy nilly, uh, you know, if I, um, you know, just eat carrots every day, I'll be cured of everything. (laughs) That's Um, good that you don't think that. (laughs) There are people, there are people very confusing ideas about health. This has been such a great discussion. And I always, I feel so privileged to have an hour to listen and come up with my word at the end of all of these series. Um, but two things I wanted to comment on. I just came back from a doctor's appointment myself seeing a GI um, physician because with all of the chemotherapies and toxicities that we're on, obviously this could lead to a lot of liver damage, et cetera. Finally, after having you know challenges with my, my current team, I got referred to the specialist. Um, so this was a six-month checkup, my second time seeing her. And I thanked her for validating my experience because she listened and I felt very comfortable with her. But I think it's one of those things where like, I wanted her to know that that's what she was doing to kind of reinforce that positive behavior, if you will, because I was like, it took me a while to get to you. But once I got to you, thank you for understanding why my enzymes are up or why this is happening this way. And it's not because I need to like exercise more and eat healthy. So, you know, I think that's, that's one thing I wanted to share, but my question also, and, um, you know, as we're learning all of this, you know, as you're providing definitions and resources and helping us define what medical PTSD is for some of us, we might not have even heard this term before, right? Like we're going through this anxiety or this trauma. We know that we have these like behaviors, like three or four days leading up to that appointment. Do you think now that we are shedding light on the terminology that is, helpful to at least give us the language to articulate what we're experiencing. I would just love to get your thoughts on that. It's hard to articulate our feelings if we don't have the language to do so. Um, And then there's also this, we have to have the language, but we also have kind of almost the, the drive in our heart to do it. It's scary to say no to a provider, um, and working up to that. Um, but, uh, the literature to describe how we feel is, um, very important in, uh, asking for 
what we need in a way that works for us and fits our preferences as much as possible. I mean, it's nobody's preference to have any kind of illness. Um, but it also gives us the language to connect with others that that feel this way. Um, and I do think that there's going to be more information about medical PTSD, medical trauma, um, as more of the public recognizes that the healthcare system is traumatizing. But with that, I want to say that that's not the fault to the healthcare system. It is being chronically ill and fighting um, a diagnosis like cancer is traumatizing in itself, and it would be for anybody. And feeling this way is not it's not your fault. One thing that occurred to me too is that you say I'm anxious about something, I'm scared about something, or you say I have medical PTSD. It it kind of feels like it not that it elevates the importance of what you're feeling, but I feel like because anxiety is something that so many people experience in a variety of ways, this is a little what I experience anyway, I'll just put it in the context of my experience. I've never had anxiety outside of having to deal with the medical system. Mm -hmm. And the anxiety that I feel is somewhat extreme at times that just saying anxiety just doesn't seem to encompass how big it feels. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I'm not saying that anybody feels, you know, that are diminishing what other people feel. I'm saying for me, what I feel involved with anxiety or dealing with the medical system is so far beyond anxieties in other areas mm -hmm. of my life. I hope that makes sense. That wasn't very well articulated. <laughs> no, yeah, that made sense. Um, there's anxiety and then there's debilitating anxiety. There's I'm so, so anxious <laughs> to come in. I'm yeah. I'm barely able to sit here and look at you. I'm, you know, there are so many thoughts running through my head. My anxiety is all encompassing right now. And how to explain that in a way that doesn't become, you know, if I choose between fight or flight, I'm choosing fight. That's just my personality. Um, mm -hmm. But but how to explain that in a way that doesn't become a, you're not pointing fingers, you're not saying it's your fault, you're not, you know, you're not upset with the person in the moment. It's just the entire experience that is influencing the way that you're interfacing with them. That has been a challenge for me to to mm -hmm. explain and then I do what you were talking about, the over-explaining. Like, I'm giving people all these details that they probably don't care about and don't want to know. But the only way I can think of to compensate is to try to give people context. Like, this is why this is so big. This is why this thing seems so overwhelming to me in this moment. Um, but I've experienced some, you know, people who aren't open to listening to that. Yeah. Usually staff, not not usually physicians, but it's it's more staff that have a harder time seeing some of that. And that doesn't surprise me because it, they're they're shorter interactions, um, whereas a doctor is a more ongoing, longer um, interaction. Yeah. Um, in terms of over explaining, I think it's better to over communicate than under, but avoid rambling. Okay, that's a great suggestion. Yeah. That 
I can't tell you how many times that I'm giving full on TED talks in my shower about how I feel. <laughs> practice it, practice it, and then edit. And then practice it and edit so it's clear, concise, and a lot of information. So that's a new elevator speech, right? It's the elevator speech again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then, um, for that fight or flight response saying like, you made me feel this, you made me feel that, um, in behavioral health, there's the classic I statements and you statements. So Abigail, uh, you, um, didn't do the dishes last night. And I had to do them this morning and it rushed me to work. And then I was stressed out, which feels like an attack because I'm sure you're going to say, well, I was so tired last night. Um, I forgot. I do the dishes all the time. Um, Instead, you can say, Abigail, when you didn't do the dishes last night and you didn't let me know that. You weren't able to get them done. I felt the compulsion to do them in the morning. And because I didn't plan for that time. I felt rushed. And that kind of took the swing out of my morning and it impacted the rest of my day. And so with very different conversation. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So with each thing you want to, and it's almost, I mean, it takes practice, but it's almost like every time you want to say, first, also when you're about to confront somebody, I always am like, say something, pause, say something, pause, because the pause allows the other person to process, but the pause also allows you to get ready to say the next thing. So in the pause, I could say a you statement and then think, how can I reword that into an I statement? Those are great suggestions. And while I would love to continue this conversation, we have reached the end of our time. <laughs> now I'm talking like a therapist, right? Like you're done. Yeah. Um, but we do have to wrap up. But I do want to ask the question that I ask at the end of all of our webinars, which is, for a word that you feel like describes our conversation tonight. And um, I think Laura might already have her word and I usually call on her first. Um, So what's the word, Laura? (laughs) I was thinking, I wanted to use the word lonely because a lot of this can feel quite isolating and lonely, but I didn't want to like, that seems like negative and sad. So I'm actually like not alone because what you're bringing to light, Emily, and through this conversation, Abigail, like we're shedding light on, what medical trauma is. And there's been a lot of, you know, comments in the chat and then head nodding, like we are not alone. So not alone is my my phrase. Thank you. All right, Emily, what about you? I think reflection. Mm. Reflection on, uh, you know, what we've experienced in the healthcare system for good or bad, reflecting on how we react to it, reflecting on the things we wish we could have done differently, reflecting on, how you're about to talk to somebody, uh, you know, it's all about building a, a relationship with all of your physicians and editing it as it goes on with any, you know, longstanding relationship that we have in our personal lives. 
I love that. So my word for tonight is humanizing because when we share how we're feeling, when we share the context and how something is affecting us, uh, we humanize ourselves. And there is so much dehumanizing that happens with medical care. And some of that is, you know, some of that is good to a certain extent, right? The people who are treating us need to be able to separate their own emotions from what they have to do. Because sometimes that's the only way that they can do their jobs and do what they need to do. But at the end of the day, we are all human on both sides of the equation. So thank you so much for being here tonight, Emily. You've given us so much food for thought and the resources that you shared are, are wonderful. Um, I see Kathleen is, is commenting in the, in the chat that her word is trust um, because yes, building that trust, that relationship with our providers can help us be able to weather the treatments that, that we have to undergo, especially for those of us in the metastatic cancer community, because the treatments are necessary to stay alive. So there's no real ability to disconnect. We have to keep coming back for the things that are, are harming us. Um, so thank you again, Emily. Really appreciated having you here tonight. And thank you everyone for listening to our show. I would like to acknowledge that all of the information on our podcast are from personal experiences and are not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should always contact your medical care team. If you're looking for specific topics or would like to be a guest on our show, please feel free to reach out to me. My email is laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. Until next time, keep on thriving.